this is Mark with Teen Challenge Connecticut. I'm sorry I missed your call. If you'll leave me a message, I will call you back. Have a great day. Thanks. Welcome to Season 3 of Sticky Beak, documenting Doreen Jane Vincent's life as well as her disappearance from Wallingford, Connecticut in June 1988. If you've come this far, first of all, thank you. Also, you know that I'd planned a break when I ended my second season this past Valentine's Day of 2022. After more than three years of driving all over Connecticut, poring over papers and microfiche, and speaking to anyone who would speak to me, I needed a bit of a breather. But there was more to it than that. It felt like I was nearing the end of every avenue I'd gone down and dug out almost all the details that I could at that point. To try to release episodes just for the sake of releasing episodes felt disrespectful to Doreen. It was time to work behind the scenes now by pursuing meaningful responses to my recent FOIA request to the WPD and by ensuring that I remained a bee in their bonnet. We all know by now that that didn't happen. On February 16, 2022, two days after the end of Season 2, Mark Hunter Vincent was arrested for the theft and criminal possession of a firearm in Milford, Connecticut. The news pulled the rug out from under me. It was an eerie callback to the summer of 1989, more than a year after Doreen vanished and Wallingford's detective Thomas Hanley decided that she might not be a runaway after all. After finally undertaking an actual investigation into her disappearance, the WPD wasn't able to find the girl but they were able to find Mark's gun. His arrest, conviction, and sentencing, as well as his small stint in prison, was a bit of justice, yes, but it had always been cold comfort to Doreen's mother, Donna, her aunts Debbie and Carol, and everyone who would love Doreen. And that comfort would have to sustain them for more than 30 years. In the fall of 2018, Sarah Demio came to my house to talk to my husband, Joe, about season two of her podcast, Faded Out. She showed me Doreen's photo, and I was all in. All in, admittedly, on a case I thought was simple. How had this not been solved? How had the wrongdoer not been punished? And another quieter question formed in my mind. As a child just three years younger than Doreen, growing up in the neighboring town from which she vanished, how did I not know this story? It wasn't long before I realized. No one did. I probably shouldn't admit this, but I've often thought the name I picked for this podcast was too obscure, too niche. I should have named it Love Doreen, the title of my very first episode. I thought that might get this case more visibility, more traction if her name was in the title. Also, this podcast is about Doreen, not me. But in the last two years, I've watched a dedicated, intelligent, heartfelt community grow up around me as I tell Doreen's story. You've sacrificed your time, dug into your talents, repeated her story to anyone who would listen, and made sure people knew her name. You even call yourselves Sticky Beaks, which I love. In another development, one that surprised, humbled, and honored me, I now hear almost weekly from listeners who want to tell me about their own experiences, who see themselves in this story, who see themselves in Doreen. Learning about Doreen's life and the push to find her justice, they tell me, has shown them they're not alone and has helped them find some sliver of healing and peace. I didn't know that was going to happen, but I'm happy that it has. I don't know what this new season will bring because this thing just became a whole new ball game. 
Before, I had always had the stories telling mostly mapped out, reporting on the past, and trying to steer things toward the future we all want to see. Now, I'm flying by the seat of my pants, which is more than a little intimidating. But it's okay, because you're all here with me. Doreen's community of those who will fight for what's right, who believe that certain things just can't be left to lie, and that good should always win. Doreen's community of Sticky Beaks. I'm Jessica fritz Aguirre, and this is Season 3, Episode 1, Asking the Lord What's Next. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children. Walk. Thank you for joining us for a third season of Sticky Beak, and a big thank you to our sponsors, JPEX Financial and probate attorney Nias Radoski. JPEX is a female-owned and operated financial services company. Jamie and Carol can help you plan for all phases of life, from homing in on retirement to planning for your children's education. Whatever the milestone may be, they'll be there to serve you. Visit their website, www.raymondjames.com backslash JPEX Financial. That's J-P-E-X Financial. Or call 860-430-5397 to speak with Jamie or Carol and take charge of your financial future. And make sure your estate is in order with Nia Sardosky, a probate attorney who did mine and Joe's estate planning, something we had been putting off for years. Nia is excellent at her job and gave us peace of mind for our future. Please give her a call at 860-966-9968 or visit ncsestateprobatelaw.com. On January 26, 2022, my phone lit up like a Christmas tree. The police had arrived on the Johnson, Vermont campus of Teen Challenge to interview Mark about the 1988 disappearance of his 12-year-old daughter, Doreen. This day had been a long time coming. It had been three years since Sarah Demio launched season two of Faded Out, two years since I began this project, and 34 years since Doreen's family had been forced on a journey of waiting, wondering, and grief. The Teen Challenge campus was abuzz, but Mark and Pastor Rick had an easy explanation to beat back the rumors. As a convicted felon, they said, Mark was prohibited from crossing state lines, and he hadn't gotten approval from law enforcement to travel to Vermont. This was not only an obvious lie, it didn't make any sense. Mark hasn't been under the thumb of probation or parole in quite some time, meaning he didn't have to report to anybody. And even if he did, why would the office in charge of that be the Wallingford police? Either way, Mark failed to give the police anything useful, providing them with, quote, inconsistent and vague accounts unquote, of Doreen's disappearance, and no information to advance the investigation. He made sure, however, to treat the detectives to one of his favorite lines, time worn after all these years. No one loved Doreen more than I did. The police also spoke to Mark's son, Doreen's brother, Paul, who told investigators that, quote, he does not know what happened to Doreen. However, he knows that Mark knows and he believes that Mark will never disclose the truth. 
That Mark was finally confronted at Teen Challenge was not lost on anyone. Back when we first learned Doreen's name, we also knew little to nothing about her father. The night we heard that outgoing voicemail message, a couple days after Christmas 2018, was the first time we'd heard Mark's voice, much less spoken to him. Mark returned Joe's call almost immediately, once he'd reprimanded Joe for his gall and bringing up his missing daughter around the holidays. He lectured him about who he thought was ultimately responsible. It was the government, he said. The government's got the juice. And that was pretty much it. He didn't want to go round and round on this anymore, he said. He knew he would see Doreen and Glory. That night was also the first time any of us had heard the name Teen Challenge. In the beginning, I had no idea what Teen Challenge actually was. So I was going around telling people it was a Christian recovery program for children, at least teenagers. I must have sounded so green, so naive, but people would fill me in soon enough. Here's part of my very first interview on this project, Faded Out or Sticky Beak, in January 2019, with Mark and Sharon's old landlord, Jimmy Farnham. Is he still alive? Yes, he's alive. He's actually joined a, from what we can tell, he's joined and is a leader in like a, a Christian group that works with at-risk children with addiction problems and, you know, criminal backgrounds. Um, is it Teen Challenge? Or? It's Teen Challenge. Yeah, you know about Teen Challenge? Well, I've seen them seen around New Haven. Is it New Haven? Uh, yes. In the Hills section of New Haven, I've seen their sign and I've seen them their vans going around. Okay. Oh, you might have crossed paths with them. So they seem they seem to be a pretty upright Christian group. Okay. What do you mean by bright? Wait, no, upright. upright. Oh, upright. Like, okay. Like legitimate. An offshoot of a ministry begun in New York City in 1958, Teen Challenge New Haven was founded in 1996 and soon joined forces with the Boston, Brockton, Mass., and Providence, Rhode Island campuses to form Teen Challenge New England in 1999. According to its website, the program was created to help men gain freedom from their addiction, drawn from its core values of passion, productivity, positivity, professionalism, and persistence. Teen Challenge would take all comers, men at the end of their rope who were looking to God for help. There were only two rules for admission, at least on paper. You couldn't be an arsonist, and you couldn't be a child molester. While Mark went to prison for burning down the White Horse Bar, the powers that be somehow didn't know about it, forgave it, or simply ignored it. As for what Mark's accused of doing to Doreen's young aunts, and to Doreen herself, he's never been convicted of anything, much less charged or arrested. Either way, since the public learned the name Mark Vincent and the troubling circumstances surrounding Doreen's vanishing, the pressure has been mounting on Teen Challenge to explain why it would shelter a man like that. Mark has always professed to be a born-again Christian. This is old news. When he entered Teen Challenge as a student in the late 90s, he met a man who would become his best friend. That man's name was Rick Welch, and Rick would go on to become a big deal in that world. Rick's path to Teen Challenge, and within it, was documented in a March 7, 2015 piece by Azuskan Larinetta for the New London Day, called New Haven native rises up from addiction, now helping others to do the same. Rick told the day that he'd started a downward spiral into drug abuse at age nine, 
when a male relative began to sexually abuse him. The torment would finally stop when Rick stood up to his abuser at the age of 12. Rick started using pot, then speed, to mask the pain. I wanted to forget what happened to me, he said. Graduating to cocaine in his 20s, Rick helped formed a local rock band called the Cartoons, or maybe the Cartoonists. Accounts differ. The group enjoyed a small measure of popularity in New England and recorded an album. Rick says that time, for him, was all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He moved on to heroin, and his marriage fell apart. He got kicked out of his mother's home, and he abandoned his young son. That son would grow up to find his father in 1997, living as a transient in New London, Connecticut. By that time, Rick had entered and left 16 drug treatment programs and detoxed at least 56 times. But his son led him to a church service where members of Teen Challenge spoke, and after eight months in the program, Rick was sober and hooked on a new drug, Hope. In 2005, he launched Teen Challenge Vermont, and he became director of the Connecticut program, located in New Haven, in 2010. It's amazing how life has come full circle, Rick told the day. My life in New Haven was marred with drug addiction, and now we're helping people who are just like me. Rick would also bring along his second wife and second son, and up until very recently, alternate between the New Haven campus and the one in Vermont. Mark's relationship with Teen Challenge was much more on again, off again. He'd graduated with Rick in the late 90s, but wasn't with the program, or at least I don't believe so, until January 2003, when he thought he was dying of heroin addiction and tried to leverage information on Doreen's disappearance for full immunity with the DA. Those talks fell apart almost as soon as they began, so quickly that these days the Wallingford PD tells me they can't even find notes on it, that the supposed wannabe confession is now more urban legend than anything. That same month, January 2003, Mark reappeared at Teen Challenge's doorway but it looks as though the second go-round didn't take. I'm not sure because I couldn't find anything on him until 2015 or 16, when he returned to Teen Challenge for what I believe is his third time. After completing the 15-month program and graduating, again, on January 27, 2017, Mark settled in as Rick Welch's right-hand man. Rick was Pastor Rick now. That connection, that friendship, would cast a shield of protection over Mark Hunter Vincent across two states for years to come. Meanwhile, Doreen's memory and her story grew dimmer and dimmer, threatening to fade out entirely from the public eye. Anyone who knows Mark Vincent can tell you that he hates people having any control, any say, over what he says and does. Having spent a healthy chunk of his life in prison, it should be obvious that life back behind bars is something he dreads. Almost from day one, Mark has made himself a target for the white hats, the good guys, having been busted for everything from burglary to assault to arson. But as more and more people have come out of the woodwork since his recent arrest, people who can say they knew Mark when, it's become clear to me that Mark's life of crime is more than just his rap sheet. Beyond the crimes for which he's actually been busted, his whole life has been one big criminal enterprise. For Mark Vincent, the world is his oyster, and other people mere obstacles to its pearl. Mark was a great carpenter, his old friends tell me, but there wasn't a lot of money in it. 
His driving factor, they said, had always been money, and the less he had to work for it, the better. In my unexpected update episode, which I did with Joe this past February 18th as news of Mark's arrest was breaking, I touched on a few of the creative ways that Mark dreamed up to put cash in his pocket. He'd strip barns of their wood at night, lift whiskey and a meat slicing machine from the country club to sell to his friends, steal furniture from antique stores and hide the evidence by burning the stores down. I know all of you are dying to hear about the arrest itself, but don't worry, that's coming right along in episode two. For now, I want to give you the lead up to how all of this happened, because after Mark was behind bars, people felt a lot safer talking, and I was inundated with an ocean of information, a lot of it about how Mark, from a very young age, has been a virtuoso of crime. Sometimes, Mark's crimes were petty, those of opportunity, sometimes using his friends as unwitting accomplices. He'd call you to pick him up, and you'd be driving along when he would yell for you to stop the car. An open garage had caught his attention, and while you idled there confused, he'd jump out and come running back with a lawnmower. But we don't need a lawnmower, you'd say. And Mark would respond, but someone does. By day, he'd work construction sites, stealing back by night to pillage all the tools. But Mark's experience robbing furniture stores taught him the value of antiques, and so Mark learned to use his status as a handyman to stake out the houses of rich folks and help himself. Sometimes, those he worked for even entrusted him with their credit cards to buy materials for the jobs he did for them. So now Mark was always showing up with something new, whether it was as mundane as cigarettes or noteworthy as a pocket knife or some really cool sunglasses items which always made his friends jealous. He'd be down on his luck one day and flush with cash the next. Remember Carol's story about the Corvette? One night, he showed up in a bar with 30,000 ill-gotten dollars, yes, that's $30,000, burning a hole in his pocket, which he used to buy his buddies round after round. And Mark would quickly develop an eye for other things of value. Those who listen to Faded Out and have great memories may recall the story of Teresa Lyons' metal detector. Teresa was one of the women Mark dated while married to Donna in the late 70s, as well as when they briefly reunited in the late 80s after Doreen was gone. Teresa told me that in the 80s iteration of their relationship, Mark had promised her a day in the park with her daughter and his kids, little Sarah and Paul. There would be hiking, swimming, metal detecting. But when it came time to leave, Mark made off with not only Teresa's metal detector, but also her car, only to throw the equipment in her face when he came home and yell that it was a piece of shit. For a long time, listeners and I wondered if maybe Mark had been looking for something of Doreen's that he'd buried or left behind. A belt buckle, maybe. An earring. But when one of Mark's old friends heard that story, he laughed because he knew exactly what Mark had been looking for. One night, high and drunk out of his mind, Mark stole a display of antique Civil War swords from a Ramada and buried them somewhere in the woods. Mark's faculties were so compromised that night, the friend told me, he could never remember where he'd buried his treasure. After all these years, the friend said, he still can't find those goddamn swords. By that time, Mark was getting high and drunk a lot 
once hallucinating that he was chasing a pickle down Main Street in Danbury and driving his friends to hysterics. Sometimes, Mark technically wouldn't steal something away from you. He would just refuse to give something back. Frank IML, owner of Frank's Paint and Hardware in New Haven, had been Mark's boss, and I think the man who introduced Mark to Jimmy Farnham, the owner of 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road. Or maybe it was the other way around. I still haven't figured that one out, but it's important that I do so. Anyway, Frank told me that besides throwing hammers at coworkers, Mark would borrow petty sums from them, like $5 or $10, and refuse to pay it back. Enough people complained about that, well, that and the hammer throwing, that Frank finally had to let Mark go, right around the time Doreen vanished. In the end, Mark won that one, making off with the car that Frank had sold him on credit. Before, he'd paid by letting Frank garnish his wages, but now he was in the wind, and his parents laughed when Frank tried to appeal to them to make their son do the right thing. You're lucky you got anything, said Mark's dad. Now that I think about it, I also don't know where that car is. Mark's brother Brad said he showed up to California in a big car, a land barge. Frank's was a Honda, I think. Beyond his employers, Mark's friends weren't immune to his penchant for taking things that weren't his. Hearing on this podcast about Mark basically helping himself to his co-worker's cash, one of Mark's old buddies recognized that move all too well. He'd borrow $20 from you, his friend told me, and then tell you to your face that you didn't deserve it back, that he deserved it more than you did. And Mark's driving desire to possess and profit off of rich things, beyond the usual 5 or 10 spot, also won out over his brotherly bonds. Once, as a teenager, Mark marveled as a friend showed off his antique coin collection. You're going to want to keep that coin collection in the back of your mind. When it disappeared soon thereafter, everyone knew it was Mark who had taken it. But just like with those pocketed bills, Mark simply denied the theft when confronted. He could get away with things like that, his friends told me, lying right to your face without blinking an eye, because he controlled the situation with his anger. You knew that if you challenged him, you would face his wrath. Mark was known to get in 15, 20 punches before you even know what was happening and could raise a hand in self-defense. Mark's keen eye for valuable things also made him a skilled treasure hunter, like a goonie with a dark side. Living on the Connecticut-New York border in the 1970s, Mark knew that kids under 21 could cross into New York to take advantage of that state's drinking age, which, at 18, was three years younger. Even before Mark could legally buy booze in either state, he realized that people were smuggling stashes back into Connecticut and hiding them somewhere to come back to later. If Mark was enterprising enough to clean out methadone clinics in New York City by pretending to be a junkie, as I told you on the update episode, he certainly had no problem mucking around the woods looking for hidden stockpiles of liquor, which quickly became his stockpiles of liquor. Once, kicking at the sheetrock in an old abandoned house, Mark discovered paintings and charcoal sketches that he sold for big money in New York City's art district. For good measure, Mark also removed and took the house's door. You know, just because. One of his local favorite haunts was The Bachelor's Two, a bar with flophouse apartments above it. It featured biker customers and a bartender named Julius, and it was a great place to get rid of stolen property. 
that place eventually burned down. In addition, Mark became a master marketer, learning quickly that the pages he'd rip out from stolen Playboys fetched a prettier penny the more they showed. Once, a friend returned from the woods, hollering that he'd found 16 Polaroids of naked girls from their high school. To the other boys, this was a real prize, but Mark furrowed his brow. Mark knew that a roll of Polaroid film yielded a dozen photos, so assuming there had been two rolls, where were the other eight pictures? He went back into the woods, and sure enough, he found them and sold each one, every one of the 16, off to the highest bidder. Despite their ability to ply me with story after story about Mark's bad boy behavior, these old friends didn't recall much about Doreen or remember seeing her around that often. One had, so long ago he couldn't remember much other than she must have been about three or four and that she was absolutely adorable. He said so to Mark. She's nothing but a pain in my ass, was Mark's reply. Now let's jump ahead in time to January 27, 2017, to 1315 Main Street in Brockton, Massachusetts. Almost five years to the day before the WPD tracked him down in Vermont, Mark would graduate, again, from Teen Challenge. You might have already seen the photos from the ceremony published on the website Wicked Local. If you haven't, you gotta look them up. Mark is seen dressed in a long black robe over a striped shirt and muted polka dot tie with a vibrant yellow graduation sash around his neck. Two photos feature him in close-up. One shows him raising his hands in something resembling worship and crying, his face wrenched in something resembling pain. In another, he raises a clenched fist in a sign of something like victory. Back living on Teen Challenge's New Haven campus, Mark's criminal career seemed to screech to a halt, at least on paper. Whether his friendship with Pastor Rick did something to tame the beast remains unclear, but it certainly came with certain benefits. Staff positions were only awarded to graduates who also completed a two-year apprenticeship program. But Mark was made staff immediately, giving him a position of authority over the students. Word is he really got a kick of bossing them around. While most men on the New Haven campus live with roommates, Mark was afforded his own room, tucked away into an alcove away from the others. On Sundays, when the men went off to church together as a group, Mark was never with them, instead off worshiping alone under the guidance of Pastor James Loomer at the Milford Christian Church. You're going to want to remember the church, too. The church was in the town of Milford, a stone's throw from New Haven and where Mark's third wife, Kathy, still lived. Sometimes he'd take students with him, but people soon became angry when they realized Mark was taking only white students. Rather than asking Mark to invite minority students along on the Milford Christian field trips, Pastor Rick simply imposed a new rule. If you were going to take Teen Challenge members to your personal church, you had to take the whole congregation. And Mark's dislike for his minority colleagues was not just implied. On at least one occasion, he called a student the N-word, which apparently was something all too common among other Teen Challenge leadership as well. I'd also heard that a certain staff member once disciplined a student for some BS reason, but whispered behind closed doors that he'd been pissed the student had been, quote, acting black. But for Mark, there was no discipline. Ever. But there certainly were opportunities. Rick put Mark in charge of rehabbing a donated mansion 
in the nearby town of Middletown into condos, paying him a salary while those working under Mark did so for literal peanut butter sandwiches. I heard, but have not verified, that Rick put Mark on a separate payroll somehow not affiliated with Teen Challenge. The reasoning, I was told, was this. If the newly resurrected Doreen situation got too hot, the different payroll gave Teen Challenge plausible deniability to say they had nothing to do with Mark. Of course, the project still needed funding for materials. Mark knew where he could find them. One source of mine recalls the day that he and Mark sat outside the New Haven train station, watching workers across the street tear down an old housing project to build something new for Yale University. That night, Mark walked into Teen Challenge with a bunch of things from the site. Wood, nails, tools, even drywall. They told me I could take this, he said. Who they were, he never specified. Because the Middletown Mansion project couldn't get by on questionably sourced drywall alone, Pastor Loomer had Mark in to testify about it to the congregation at Milford Christian. Good morning. Hallelujah. This is a mansion, an 1890s mansion uh, in Middletown, Connecticut, that was donated by a couple to Teen Challenge. When I finished the program, I had a couple of job offers, and I said, Lord, I'm not moving without you. Do you know that those that wait upon the Lord, they shall mount up with wings as eagles? Uh, they shall walk and not faint. They shall run and not be weary. Is that, did I get that right? Right. Those that wait on the Lord, all others are exempt. This project, I'm the project manager here. This is my third job that I got in the midst of me saying, Lord, I'm not moving without you. Two days before graduation, this job came in and I knew it was God. This is gonna be six condos where you see the split. It was divided in the 40s into duplex left and right one two three floors one two three floors it's going to be we're in the process of renovating it uh into six condos i said all that to say this we have a paperwork there there's others that have come to teen challenge and said what can we do to help if god so moves on your heart you know take it because you know he'll he'll supply there's uh, there's uh, donations uh, that are received for certain parts of the building. It's just very cool how God's working it out. There's a brochure on the table. Just check it out. If that's not you, praise the Lord. Um, but it's it's very exciting. These The condos are going to be sold, and the money is going to be... Uh, is going to be uh, paying for a new Teen Challenge Connecticut. Teen Challenge Connecticut's in the in the hood, in New Haven. 
Uh, they don't want to put any money into it at this point because God's on the move. They're going to sell that. Uh, it's a big corner, and uh, they're going to sell these units. And it's like when I'm over there certain days, I can see on the horizon the families coming uh, to visit their resurrected sons and husbands, you know. And it's very exciting, you know, to, to see God uh, do it. And people have come out of the woodwork, as it were, you know, uh, just this past week. We're having a parking lot uh, put in in the front here, this is the front, and there's a parking lot that's gonna be in the back. The front's gonna be done first, and I put a drain on the wall. It's got a beautiful stone wall. Can't see it here, but in preparation for the parking lot that somebody donated uh, $50,000 for the parking lot. So God's doing this stuff, you know. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's also the author and finisher of the projects that he starts. Hallelujah. You won't be surprised to hear that, despite all those hallelujahs, Mark remained a menace, something the students now saw even clearer out with him in the real world, where Mark was now in charge. Driving his students to and from the mansion's Middletown site in a Teen Challenge van, Mark would often make detours into residential neighborhoods to urinate in public. And of course, his temper remained unabated. Besides his infamous rages and penchant for throwing hammers at people, students also lived in terror of his driving. Teen Challenge's insurance companies required GPS on the vans, and they would catch him doing 100, sometimes more, on the highway. In residential areas, he'd swerve toward pedestrians who dared step into the street before he deemed it their time to cross. Once, he'd almost hit someone in the Teen Challenge parking lot, and that man, I kid you not, was disciplined for, quote, getting in Mark's way. Another time, a student who'd had enough yelled at Mark to let him out of the van. Mark pulled over, and as soon as the man was opening the van door, Mark slammed on the gas, causing the student to fall out into the road. Still not satisfied, Mark then doubled back to the man who had dared to challenge him, who was scrabbling, and got out, punching the side of the van and screaming that he was not the one to mess with. He had, Mark said, a lot of bodies buried all over the state. When he wasn't driving, he'd kick people out of the driver's seat for not going fast enough and take over. Eventually, his driving privileges were taken away, but that was it. Despite the constant reprimands and discipline meted out to others for all infractions, great and small, Mark was never punished once. I'll speak to him, was all Pastor Rick ever said. Shielding Mark got harder and harder once Faded Out and Sticky Beak managed to lodge Doreen's story in the public consciousness. Men on campus were forbidden from listening to it or speaking to others about it, and disobeying that rule came with discipline. Pastor Rick had a meeting with all New Haven staff members to ensure they understood, but it was Jeff Cifarelli, brother to Wallingford Detective Jim Cifarelli, that imparted that lesson to the students. Known for absentmindedly swinging a baseball bat by his side, the detective's brother would warn the men, if this comes back to me and my family, I'll take care of you myself. Mark started to keep to himself even more than normal and to dye his gray hair black. But the men at Teen Challenge were bucking the rules, passing the podcasts around like, well, boys might pass around a stolen Playboy. 
These sources popped up on my phone like popcorn, one after the other. One story I heard over and over sounded something like hyperbole, and maybe even hysteria, brought on by the dark truths the men were learning. According to this tale, someone had walked in on Mark late at night in one of the Teen Challenge bathrooms. He was staring into the mirror and muttering to himself when suddenly he realized he was not alone and whipped around to scream at the interloper. They said his eyes were black as night. Again, this sounded a bit overdone to me, but upon hearing from Mark's old friend how he liked to practice his lies in the mirror to convince himself he'd done no wrong, I could suddenly see it. In the summer of 2019, Mark's son Paul arrived at Teen Challenge, Connecticut. Just weeks before, he'd come from Ohio to see Sarah Dimio, Doreen's Aunt Debbie, and me at Gouveia Vineyards across the street from the house, after which he spent a small stint with Mark's ex, Teresa Lyon, and her husband in Florida. Already built on a rickety foundation, Paul and Teresa's friendship fell apart, and she kicked him out, claiming all he did was sit in her chair, smoke her weed, and bum rides to the library. Paul might have a different explanation than that. Once father and son were reunited, I heard that the relationship between them was strained, and took a scary turn when Paul had something of a breakdown, at least according to my sources who claimed they were quoting Mark. Mark was telling people that Paul put a gun in his mouth and threatened to pull the trigger. Mark claimed that Paul was saved when Mark, literally, had prayed the gun out of his son's mouth. Shortly thereafter, Paul was sent to live at Teen Challenge, Vermont. Pastor Rick would soon follow, he had always been the director of both Teen Challenge Vermont and Connecticut, dividing his time between both. Now he made his move from New Haven to Johnson permanent. Rick is no longer listed on the Teen Challenge New Haven page at all, and his bio on the Vermont page reads as follows. In 1997, Rick Welch was desperate to change his life after years of drug addiction and alcohol abuse. Hopeless and destitute, he decided to give Teen Challenge a try. At the Adult and Teen Challenge Center in New Haven, Connecticut, Rick found new life and new purpose. Eternally transformed, he longed to bring God's healing touch to those who are as hopeless as he once was. Upon completion of the program, Rick decided to stay on and serve in the ministry, first as an intern and then moving to a staff position. He soon realized that he would never desire to do anything with his life except to serve God and to passionately bring the inspirational message of the gospel to the addicted and their hurting families. After years of visiting and ministering in Vermont with the Connecticut Choir, Rick desired to expand the ministry there, and in 2003, he was appointed director of the first Adult and Teen Challenge in Vermont. So, to my eye, that new bio was a lesson in revisionist history. It presented Rick's time in New Haven almost as an afterthought, making no mention of Rick's directorship on the Connecticut campus since 2010, more than 10 years. As far as the Connecticut page was concerned, mention of Rick was wiped out entirely. It was as if a biography of Barack Obama relayed his time as a community organizer, then a senator from Illinois, then jumped straight to his time as a philanthropist and writer, with no mention of the presidency. Sorry if that's not your political cup of tea, but that's what I got right now. 
Once Rick was gone, married couple Wayne and Yvette Gallagher took over as directors of the New Haven campus. The Gallaghers were highly unpopular, and many students and staff revolted, quitting entirely or leaving for Vermont. Suddenly, at the end of July 2021, I learned that Mark had left for Vermont, too. He told a lot of people it was because the Middletown Mansion project was ending, but it was whispered that Mark had finally worn out his New Haven welcome without Rick there to protect him. It wouldn't be long before I got some hints as to why. I'm sure many of you, especially in the Northeast, have seen the Teen Challenge fundraiser booths. At first, too nervous to say anything, listeners began to call the fundraisers out to challenge them with details of Doreen's disappearance. Suddenly, the news that everyone was asking about Mark Vincent got back to Teen Challenge staff. That was the case one day last August. Multiple listeners alerted me that two Teen Challenge members were hawking cutting boards outside East Center Street Market in Wallingford. That's a little grocery about two and a half miles from the house on Whirlwind Hill Road. And that would have been the first sign of life, or at least sign of a payphone, that Doreen would have come upon had she run away. One listener scoped it out on the premise that Mark had ghosted her after promising to do some work. The two men told her he'd gone to Vermont because Teen Challenge did him dirty, but that he took it like a real Christian. At some point, I just couldn't help it and drove there myself, meeting up with another listener who had already spoken to them, one of about a half dozen or so who had already given the men an earful. The two, a black guy in his mid-40s and a white kid no more than 19, were a little shocked, but also open and engaging. For over an hour, I spoke to them about Doreen and Mark, about the mystery that had befallen the girl, and about the long criminal history of the man. The older guy had heard rumors about Mark, but nothing like this. He told me about the one requirement for admission to Teen Challenge. No arsonists, no child molesters, and just shook his head in disbelief. The young kid, on the other hand, was having trouble seeing it. He'd seen the devil in people before, he told me, and he certainly didn't see it in Mark Vincent. The kid wasn't getting any evil vibes. I bit my tongue as the older guy laughed. Satan's not always ugly or scary, he said. Lots of times, Satan is beautiful. That's how he gets you. I pressed for details about why Mark had abandoned Connecticut for Vermont. This time, the two fundraisers made no mention of Mark being done dirty or taking anything like a good Christian. There had been a blowout, they told me, between Mark and New Haven's new directors, the Gallaghers. In the version they had heard, Mark had gotten into it with one of the younger workers, a man named Seth, on the day the Teen Challenge Brass was visiting the Middletown Mansion to inspect its progress. Seth had backed off, cooled down, but Mark couldn't let it go, and he followed the kid around all day, staying right on his tail. Another source would later fill in some other detail. Seth had apparently bragged about his skills as an expert painter, so Mark put him to work doing just that, only to find him painting the mansion's floor. Another source told me that Mark fell out with the Gallaghers because they'd noticed serious corners were being cut in Middletown. Apparently, unauthorized charges had been popping up and receipts going missing on the Home Depot credit card Teen Challenge had given Mark in his role overseeing the project. In one story, Mark and Wayne had a yelling match, and Mark quit on the spot, packing up his tools and complaining to anyone who'd listen 
that the Gallaghers were being assholes over a few petty little expenses. As for the East Center Street fundraisers, a man named Josh, who'd been on the Teen Challenge staff, would later tell me he'd come across the younger of the two men in the campus's learning center, gathering men to tell them everything he'd learned from me and the listeners that day. In line with Pastor Rick's rule, Josh had disciplined the student. I didn't ask how, as a result. Shortly thereafter, Josh told me Wayne and Yvette Gallagher had run him out of Teen Challenge on a rail. I heard stories like that before. This hadn't been the first time, nor would it be the last, that Teen Challenge would rip the carpet out from one of their brothers in Christ. Mark called Rick immediately, the story went, and Rick assured his old buddy that there was always a place for him in Vermont. So Mark and Rick, not to mention Mark and Paul, were reunited. Normally, Teen Challenge prohibits family members from being on the same campus together, which really should have been an issue in New Haven. But again, Rick made an exception. Still, my sources report that father and son remained distant, with no real warmth or even acknowledgement seen between them. My source Josh, who'd been a friend of Mark's, had been out to lunch with the two a couple of times at a place called the Burger Barn. As they ate, Josh said, Mark had focused on him and ignored Paul. That frostiness had been obvious since Paul and Mark's short time together in New Haven, but somehow Rick seemed blinded to it. According to another source, Rick was enamored with the idea that Mark and Paul should be the joint keynote speakers at Teen Challenge's annual banquet. To him, the two represented a living symbol of how God could bring broken families together. Apparently, it took all of the Teen Challenge staff to convince Rick that a showcase featuring Doreen's father and brother as the face of the organization, especially as more and more listeners harassed them outside Walmarts and at local fairs, was a really bad idea. And I would soon learn of another reason why Mark might have wanted to hightail it out of Connecticut. In July 2021, Days before he'd left town, Wallingford police had headed to Milford to have a word with Mark's wife, Kathy. Kathy confirmed for them that Mark had found a permanent home at Teen Challenge about six years prior, and that he was happy there. He even had a job there. Disavowing any knowledge of Doreen's fate, she told the investigators that she and Mark had only discussed his daughter and her disappearance a couple of times during their 20-year-plus marriage. Once the police left, Sources close to Kathy told me she'd made sure everyone within shouting distance knew why they'd come, but that her husband had nothing to do with Doreen. Then she'd wasted no time calling Mark up in New Haven to warn him that the cops were sniffing around. Then she hightailed it to her mother's in Florida. Some have had or might have trouble making sense of why Kathy would protect Mark even now. They'd been estranged, maybe even formally separated for years and he'd been living at the New Haven campus since 2015 or 16, while she'd stayed in Milford. One source told me he'd been out one day fundraising for Teen Challenge, when Kathy arrived at the table crying about how badly Mark had treated her, that he'd stolen all of their things and sold them for crack. That was believable, the source said, because Mark had basically told people the same story with minor changes. In the face of these challenges, however, Mark had recently been moping about Kathy declaring he would win her back. He even took a stab at it by buying her a present last Christmas. I don't know when he'd last done that, but he announced it to his fellows as if it were a special event. And honestly, it didn't seem like things had ever been all that great for the couple, even in the beginning. 
One source had known the couple back in the early 90s and would hang out with Kathy at their pool. I remember Kathy would panic as Mark would get home, this person wrote me, and was literally wearing turtlenecks, putting sunscreen on all the time, and safety pinning her own swimsuit so it would have a higher neckline. This came off as weird to me since this was her own pool. David, Mark and Kathy's son born around 1994 or 1995, also made people a little uneasy. I asked for examples. Once, the source told me, he'd gotten a frog from the pond in his yard and thrown it onto someone's birthday cake. I have to admit that one made me laugh. It struck me like something Bart Simpson would do, or maybe Dennis the Menace. But David would also bring live frogs into the kitchen to cut up on the counter in front of guests. Once, when he was only four, he'd cornered a girl in his family's garage and used all his strength to try to rip her bathing suit off. She'd been about 10, bigger and stronger, so he didn't succeed, but it wasn't from lack of trying. In all fairness, I can't judge anyone for things they did as a little kid, and I've heard not one bad word about grown-up David, who recently joined the Air Force. I know that because at those burger barn lunches with his friend Josh, David was the only one of his four kids that Mark ever spoke about, and he spoke about David often, even though Paul was right there. Back to Kathy. Her reaction to recent events may have surprised some people, but not me. Whether she knows anything about Doreen or not, and I have no evidence that she does, Kathy has protected Mark for years. When Mark had jumped bail on his first gun charge back in 1990 or so, it was Kathy who had hidden him out in Milford. I'm not sure, but I think it was at her mother's house. Kathy had met the police at the front door to insist Mark wasn't there, as he tried unsuccessfully to slip out the back, only to get busted in the attempt. Years later, Mark and Kathy would arrive without warning or invitation at a cider mill owned by one of Mark's sisters, with Kathy on a mission to somehow melt the Arctic ice shelf that had grown up between her husband and his family. Mark was a misunderstood victim, she said, who didn't deserve to be shunned. His brothers and sisters were just silly to treat him that way, she insisted, and they should all get together like old friends. The Vincent siblings weren't buying it. When Mark arrived in Vermont last July, I knew within days, and I called the WPD with the news. Later in the affidavit for the search warrant that would land Mark in jail on this current charge, the police would write, Shortly after investigators spoke to Kathy, it was discovered that Mark moved from Connecticut to the Teen Challenge campus in Vermont. Hear that passive voice? Sticky beaks, I'm used to it. That same document makes a giant leap in its timeline from Mark's 1991 conviction on that gun charge until 2019, when the affiant wrote, investigators continued the investigation into the homicide of Doreen. Yep, between 1991 and 2019, there wasn't much going on. I wonder why that was. Anyway, as 2021 faded into 2022, and as I began to wrap up my second season and embark on my fourth year of investigation, it was hard not to feel like this case was still moving at a glacial pace. It was around this time, in early February of this year, when two of my trusted Teen Challenge sources recommended that I get in touch with Josh. You've heard that name, which is new to this story, sprinkled into this episode. Josh, they told me, was a great guy. A vet with technical skills and a master's degree from Liberty University, 
He was the director of Teen Challenges and Addiction Program, responsible for all those fundraising efforts. He was also responsible for booking the group's choir to sing and give testimony at local churches to spread the word of God. He'd also tell his own story quite powerfully about what Teen Challenge had done to help him get sober after his tours in Iraq had left him with an addiction to inhalants. Oh yeah, and other than Rick, Josh was Mark's best friend. Apparently, they went to lunch together every day, or close to it. As you can imagine, I was not thrilled about the prospect of talking to Josh. While tempted by the promise of all I could glean from someone super close to Mark, why in the hell would I speak with a person super close to Mark? I'd also learned that beyond being Mark's lunch buddy, Josh had been the staff member who wrote up the young fundraiser from East Center Street Market for talking about Doreen. In addition, Josh remembered the day Doreen's Aunt Debbie had shown up to the campus unannounced because he'd been one of the men who'd locked the front door and insisted she go around to the back, where everybody swore up and down that Mark wasn't part of Teen Challenge. Josh would later fully admit that he had shut his eyes and ears not only to all things Sticky Beak, but all things Doreen. All things bad about Mark. Anything bad about Mark, he didn't want to hear. But my two sources told me they had finally prevailed upon him to listen to the podcast. And there might be a crack in the armor. So when Josh started listening around June 2021, he went in believing I'd formulated my suspicions out of whole cloth, that I was grasping at the straws of innuendo and assumption to bring a good man down. In other words, he thought the podcast was bullshit. His first time through the episodes, he'd taken comfort in the lack of direct evidence against his friend. But faced with the rest, the ocean of circumstantial evidence, one little thing kept gnawing at him. It was the pea pods, he would tell me. The pea pods that were Doreen's favorite. The pea pods Mark had taken from his mother, Lori, on Father's Day 1988, without a word. Josh is a dad, as well as, of course, a son. He knows what Father's Day means, at least for most people. Wanting to believe his gut was off, Josh listened to both seasons, every episode, twice more. And now that ocean of evidence threatened to drown him. He wanted to speak to me to see if I was the real deal. When Josh and I first began talking this past February 9th, we did a good deal of sniffing around each other, trying to figure the other one out. When Josh had joined Teen Challenge in August 2020, Mark had taken him under his wing, which seemed normal from a man who did that a lot, from a man who really wanted the students to see him as a father figure. Well, at least the white students. Josh said he and Mark would talk for hours, many of which Mark took up digging for details about Josh's personal life and encouraging him to reunite with his estranged wife. Josh would later text, Mark was always trying to be close with my family. It's weird now that I think about it. And first Josh hadn't thought about it at all, because Mark seemed like a guy to whom family was really important. At the Teen Challenge family days, Josh said, Mark spent all his time talking to the wives and playing with their kids. I could picture it. An acquaintance of mine, who is not a listener, had recently been to the New Haven campus to help with a charity breakfast her office had organized. Seeing her Facebook photos from the event, I called her immediately and told her who she'd been serving pancakes to. She was shocked. Not the man who'd spent the whole morning playing with a little disabled girl, 
picking her up to dance and twirl her around. She'd thought it was so sweet. As for Josh, he too only saw the side of Mark Vincent, except for once when he'd run out of gas driving to Teen Challenge New Jersey on an errand. He ran out of gas, and when he called Wayne and Yvette Gallagher back in New Haven, they tried to blame him instead of the person who was responsible to have filled the tank the previous night, as was customary. Mark was in the room with the Gallaghers when they took Josh's call, and Josh listened as Mark angrily and loudly took them to task for trying to pin responsibility on his friend. There would be no love lost between Josh and the Gallaghers. Josh would incur Yvette's wrath again on July 23, 2021. At that point, Josh thinks that Mark had already left for Vermont around July 5th or probably the 12th. And here's one thing you need to know about Josh. He recalls these dates very well because he has them all in his planner and on his phone. A few days before the 5th or the 12th, Paul would drive from Vermont to the Connecticut campus and then to Ohio, where his mother Sharon had spent life after Mark. Josh recalled that date because he himself had flown to Columbus, Ohio, out of Hartford's Bradley Airport on July 5th, and he knew that his own trip to Ohio was somehow overlapping with Paul's. Josh is also fairly confident that Mark went along with Paul to Ohio because he recalled that Mark had a silver Honda Accord rental car on campus during that time. Anyway, let's get back to July 23rd. If at this point you find yourself needing one of those crazy maps with the red string connecting names and dates, believe me, you are not alone. Josh is certain Mark wasn't at the New Haven campus that day because it was the day of his Teen Challenge graduation and Mark hadn't attended the Brockton ceremony as he usually did. Josh was packing everyone into the van to drive them to the ceremony in Massachusetts when a woman named Sandra climbed in. Sandra was an older woman who was a constant visitor to the New Haven campus, where she liked to perform little acts of kindness for the men there. As a result, the men of Teen Challenge loved Sandra deeply. They did not have those feelings for Yvette Gallagher, however, and this made her mad. So she'd angrily ordered Josh to kick Sandra out of the van into the pouring rain. Josh refused. At New Haven's next group Bible study a few days later, Sandra didn't attend as she usually did. The Gallaghers insisted that she had quit her work with Teen Challenge, but in fact, Yvette had told Sandra to stay away or she would have her arrested for trespass. That's what Sandra said. The Gallaghers insisted that Josh lie about what had happened that day in the van to paint Sandra as the bad guy. The dust-up that resulted was so bad, Josh was asked to leave the campus on August 3, 2021. A week later, on August 10th, Wayne kicked him out of the program entirely. A distraught Josh took an Uber to a hotel and called Rick and Mark up in Vermont. Late that night, Rick called him back. Not to worry, Rick said. Mark will come and get you in the morning and drive you up here. So Mark came to fetch Josh in his black Honda CRV and took him to a diner for breakfast. Then they started on the four-hour trip, talking nonstop. Josh says they would talk about anything and everything. In Waterbury, Vermont, Mark stopped for gas. Josh got out to stretch his legs, and his phone slipped under the passenger seat. As he hunched down to search for it, Josh saw what he's pretty sure was a black gun with raised indentations on the grip. I say pretty sure because it was dark under the seat. He didn't say anything to Mark or anyone else. Sometime in mid to late August 2021, 
Josh would hear from several Teen Challenge members, including one of Paul's good friends, that Paul had his own gun, which he kept hidden in a black box just outside the campus's woodline. In the end, things would not work out for Josh at Teen Challenge Vermont either. In October 20th, 2021, he left and landed at a hotel in New Hampshire. Mark helped him pack his car, all the time crying and begging him not to go. Even now, Josh says he doesn't understand why. It would be the last time the two men would see each other. The next day, October 21st, 2021, Mark called Josh to tell him he'd had mail and packages delivered to the campus. Mark arranged for Josh to pick up the mail from Paul, whom Josh met on October 23rd outside Walmart. Paul was there, manning a fundraising table with another student. Josh had just planned to pick up his mail and go, but he decided to stay and tell Walmart shoppers about his journey to sobriety. He also wanted to help sell the boards. A week later, on the day before Halloween, Paul invited Josh to go shooting with him and Mark. Josh declined, he says, because that was his weekend with the kids. After that, he kept in touch with Mark, but via phone only. They discussed meeting up for lunch and church, but they couldn't make their schedules work together. Josh was supposed to do Mark's taxes this past February 12th, but after what happened next, that was a no-go too. On February 11th, one day before what would have been tax day, at least Mark's tax day, and two days after Josh had started speaking to me, Josh called Mark. While he told me he remained unconvinced of Mark's guilt beyond a shadow of a doubt, he was angry. Mark had never once mentioned Doreen in the hours of conversation the two had shared, and Josh felt used, lied to, and betrayed. He texted me later that night to tell me about the call. Mark and I spoke tonight, he wrote, didn't go that well, but I had to say what I needed to say. I pressed for more detail. I didn't accuse him of killing Doreen, Josh admitted, and I definitely didn't tell him that I thought he did it. I approached it from the perspective of being disappointed and upset he had never mentioned it to me. I asked him why he never felt like it was important to tell me about Doreen. He remained mostly calm on the phone. However, he was definitely annoyed that I brought it up. I just assumed I'd never hear from him again. I didn't mention anything. I talked to him about how much I defended him with the students and the staff. He didn't seem to care. He said, I don't talk about it anymore. The police made stuff up. I've moved on. That podcaster, Mark said, she was a liar too. Josh felt like he'd been knocked sideways texting, I did it more for me than for anyone else. But nevertheless, I got the answer I knew was coming. Essentially, I've been conned. And that's not easy to deal with on any level. I'm surprised I kept him on the line as long as I did. I think I did it just for the sake of our relationship. But he abruptly ended the call. It would be the last time Josh and Mark would actually speak on the phone. For the next few days, things were pretty calm, with me fielding a call here and there from Josh or another teen challenger who wanted to talk. But on the morning of February 16th, 2022, my phone went nuts, just like it had a few weeks earlier when the WPD had surprised Mark in Vermont. The text came in a river. The first one was from Josh, and it knocked the wind out of me. Mark is no longer with Teen Challenge, he wrote. I can't say I'm thrilled about that because I felt like it was the only way to get to the truth. He's so calculated. 
Josh sent me a screenshot of a text from Mark that read as follows. Good morning, Joshua. Hey, how's it going? I'm in Connecticut, yes. Asking the Lord what's next. The air in Vermont is bad. Bad and getting worse by the day. Must be a test site. Anyway, hope all is well. Love ya. Peace. The emojis, the conspiracy theories, and the peace at the end made it clear. This wasn't some trick. This was Mark. And this wasn't just a visit Mark told Josh. He'd left Vermont for good. I am done, he wrote. I did tell Pastor Rick I wanted to finish the job, but I can't breathe. And in fact, it's getting worse. Also, of course, I did want to stay with my son. The Lord will show me going forward. Peace. I don't think I've ever dialed a phone number faster. And within seconds, I was leaving a rushed voicemail for Anthony DeMeo, deputy chief of the Wallingford Police. He called me back within minutes. We know, he said simply when I picked up. We know. At first, I was speechless, then struggling to keep my voice level as I tried to get anything and everything I could out of him. I had a pen clenched in my hand as usual, hovering over my latest Doreen notebook filled with Catholic schoolgirl writing that's declined into chicken scratch. But DeMeo remained tight-lipped. So I let him know that I had been aware of the January trip to interrogate Mark for weeks. I'll fully admit I was a little pissed. First, that I had somehow been scooped. But more importantly, even now, when it should have been clear that I was 100% tuned in, directly on top of breaking developments, he was still treating me like he thought I was JV. My words did seem to hit their mark, with DeMeo being quick to tell me that the WPD knew things that I didn't. I'm sure that's true, I argued, but so was the opposite. And I repeated what I've been telling them for years now, that if we layer our files on top of each other, if we talk to each other, no holds barred, we can fill in each other's blanks. We can solve this case. Like I've said, the more eyes, ears, and brains, the better. Again, I offered to sign a non-disclosure agreement, to not broadcast any new information or evidence that they would show me, to keep things quiet in favor of moving the case along together. Again, I stressed that it would devastate me if something I did or said in the course of this work somehow compromised the case. DeMeo thanked me for saying that and admitted that it was one of the department's concerns. Still, I thought, after all these years? I was working hard to stifle my anger and frustration when DeMeo suddenly spoke again. And now, instead of sounding annoyed, his voice was confident, invigorated, friendly. Look, he told me, we're getting a flurry of info on this case. At this very minute, it's the most active this case has ever been. Our guys are working hard, and they're really excited over here. We have a few things to check off our list, but once we do, the department would love to have you in. We're excited to see what you have. They've been telling me that they have a few more things to check off their list for more than two years now since that February 2020 FOIA hearing where Michael Colavolpe said that they were planning on arresting Mark, you know, maybe within a year. But this rendered me pretty much speechless. So I thanked him and I hung up, confused. While I had been to the WPD many times, I don't think I ever went on an invite that I didn't have to wrangle myself. And now after all this time, they were going to willingly invite me in and they were excited to have me. Joe asked, isn't that good news? And I had to admit, I had no freaking idea. 
but I did know one thing. Mark being back in Connecticut was spiking my anxiety. For months, he'd been mere miles away in New Haven as I'd broadcast chapter after chapter of Doreen's story and his. But now his sudden presence back here, especially out from under what had always seemed like Pastor Rick's protective umbrella, seemed different, unmoored. Over our morning coffee the next day, February 17th, Joe agreed with me and emailed DeMeo. In light of the recent events in Doreen's case, he wrote, and the fact that Mark is on the run right now, I am concerned about our safety, specifically Jessica's. I don't know if you are keeping close tabs on him or if he's under any type of surveillance, but knowing his back is to the wall, I wouldn't put it past him to exact some revenge. What I'd like you to do, since you probably can't directly address my concerns, is to notify my local police department and inform them about the situation. I'm not looking for protection, but in the event something occurred, I'd like my local PD to at least be aware, and at the very least, know where my house is if they needed to come here. Thank you for your attention to this matter, and I appreciate your efforts in solving this case. Then, Joe left for a meeting, and I went to my remote office, meaning my dining room, to begin my workday. What seemed like mere minutes later, my phone buzzed with a call from Joe. I'll be honest, I was a little annoyed. We had just been together. I had a ton of work to do at my real job with more than enough to distract me, and I'd just gotten into the groove. But when I picked up, Joe couldn't even wait until I said hello to get the words out. DeMeo just called me, he said in a rush. He's in custody, Jess. They got him on different charges, but he's in custody. My body went numb. My legs almost went out from under me, and I burst into tears. I'd woken up that morning anticipating some regular humdrum Thursday, but now Mark Vincent was in custody. And suddenly, here I was, asking the Lord what's next. Walk softly, children.